fear the battle, we won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us, you will lead the way. We have found a refuge only you can save. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Even when I stumble, even when I fall, even when I turn back, still your love is sure. You will not abandon, you will not forsake, you will cheer me on with your never-ending grace. Sing with joy now, our God is for us, the Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater, who can stand against us if our God is for us. confidence that God is for us? How can we know that, that all these things are true, that there's no love that's greater? Let's meditate on the truth in Ephesians 3 this morning. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the plan of the mystery hidden from ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Let us meditate, let us rejoice in this mystery that's now realized in Christ. And through Christ, we have this bold assurance. the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory see the price of our redemption see the Father's plan unfold we need many sons to Come behold the wondrous man. 
perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Let us rejoice in that. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. church would you get your bibles and go to the book of ephesians a little letter to the church of ephesus and also to all the churches throughout all time and you have your bible there we we'll go to the third chapter and talk about the unsearchable riches of christ ephesians chapter 3 verses 7 through 13 y'all okay everybody all right good all right i want a show of hands now how many of you presently are sneaking into Kroger's and out without a mask? Would you raise your hand? Okay, yeah. I just wanted to know that there were fellow conspirators. I, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I try. I try to be a rule follower. I really do try hard. Um, yeah, I was, one morning I was in there. It was probably a Monday, and I forgot my mask. I'm waiting, and I realized I didn't have my mask on. I'm like, I'm not getting in the back of that line again. And uh, somebody was looking at me, I'm just like, don't even, <laughs> don't even, it's not a good day. So yeah, so yeah, eventually, you know, uh, first Sunday in June, we won't have here the, you know, encouragement to wear masks here anymore, but um, we feel like people have an opportunity, they will be able to get the vaccine if they want it by then, and if you don't want it, that's up to you, that's your choice. Um, but uh Everybody would have, I believe, a chance to have been vaccinated by then. And so now if you still feel uh, that you're comfortable wearing a mask, you, you can do that. That's you, it's not like we're going to stop you at the door, you know, and take it off of you, or, you know. But uh, you're, you're allowed to do that, but we're not going to be re requiring that anymore. I do appreciate your all's patience with that. Uh, we were going through, obviously, uncertain and uncharted waters and trying to navigate through that and keep us as healthy as possible and um, thank God we we didn't have an outbreak here at our congregation and so evidently y'all washed your hands and stuff like that that's great thank you for doing that and it goes to show you didn't breathe on each other so that's good too all right um, Ephesians chapter 3 um, this section of the scripture Paul had just been talking about the mystery of the gospel and how that God was not adding the Gentiles to Israel, but instead God was making a new humanity composed of every nation and all ethnic groups. And so this new humanity would be composed of and consist of those who have repented of their sinful rebellion against God and had trusted upon Jesus, the Son of God, as Lord and Savior, being the substitution, uh, substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for their sins, having paid the sin debt, have, having brokered peace with heaven through his death, and also 
establishing the fact of his kingship by his resurrection from the dead. And so that new humanity has been the mystery of God. Not that God wasn't revealing that in the Old Testament. He was, beginning in Genesis 3.15. He progressively revealed it, but it came to full light at the appearance of Jesus. And so that was the mystery. Now, we pick up in verse 7, and Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister. So he's, he uh, was talking about the gospel that not just saves individuals, but it's a composing a new nation. A kingdom of priests, as the book of Peter says, First Peter. And so that gospel that is transforming the lives of people and making people into one new humanity, a humanity that marches under the banner of Jesus, that's the gospel that Paul has been preaching. Now, the question is, what is supposed to be the content of the preacher's message? Now, I want you to think about this just a minute. We, we have what Paul did here, and okay, that's history. So today, in today's world, a preacher gets up into the, the, and gets a chance to talk. Now, um, for me, um, you know, I stand behind the lectern because uh, it keeps me from falling over. The cool preachers have a little table and a cup of coffee and uh, jeans and a flannel shirt and talk to you. My friends, there is a difference between talking and preaching. It's not the same thing. And it's not just methodology. It's also calling and power. There's a difference. And as a preacher, what, what is your message supposed to be? What, what am I supposed to be talking? What's my main point? What's the primary topic of, of the sermon? Am I supposed to give you opinions on whether or not the... Biden should have closed down the pipeline? Uh, am I supposed to help promote patriotism here? To make sure that everybody has a high level of patriotism? Is, is that my task? Is that what I'm assigned to do? Am I supposed to just be instructing you on how to be nicer? I just want you to be a nicer citizen of Chillicothe. Be sure that you're in all the five K's. Be sure that you help keep the streets clean. Be sure that you participate in the civic clubs. Let's be sure that we keep the park clean. Is that what I'm supposed to be talking about? Is my point of pride going to be that finally one of our families from our church is on the cover of Great Seal magazine? I'm just trying to keep you all out of the gazette under the wrong section. Am I supposed to be here to promote the social agenda of our town? Which evidently everybody that lives in Ross County is a nice person and a good person because they're part of the community. And so as long as you're part of the community and contributing to the community, evidently you're not, the community is the God of this place. And evidently if you're contributing to that in some kind of positive way, evidently you're a nice person probably going to heaven. And my job as a pastor is to help you to be even nicer. Is that the job? What about this? What, what's the purpose of a preacher? Is, is my primary task supposed to be to organize fun and social events for the members? Make sure that y'all have a Christian alternative, right? 
I mean, we got Halloween, then we got like Christian ween. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Let, let's make sure we have a Christian softball league where at least we curse under our breath. It's nicer that way. Is that what we're supposed to just create this artificial monastery here where we just do Christian stuff and I'm supposed to organize those activities? Maybe it's this. Maybe I'm the hired friend. And I'm supposed to just come around to your house and sit for two or three hours and just drink coffee and make sure you're not lonely. Y'all paying an awful lot of money. You can get that cheaper on match.com. I promise you can. Is that, is that the job of the preacher? See, the reason I bring this up is because the Christian ministry has been defamed to that kind of thinking now. That's what they think. And so then when somebody, as one of you had told me when I first came here, Pastor, uh, we love you, but we feel like uh, dogs have had boiling hot water thrown on them. Well, I hope you're clean at least now. But, but part of it is there's this concept of what a pastor is supposed to be. He's supposed to be like this nice little collie and you can just pet him and he's so nice. Is that, is that what it should be? See, if, if we're looking at what Paul describes as the ministry, it's not that. It's not that at all. And for me, I think to myself as their pastor, what is the one thing I can do for them that nobody else is going to? What is the one thing that I can give them that nobody else can give them? Give that. Give that to your people. That will sustain them. That will help them. The primary task of the preacher of the gospel, what should I be saying from the pulpit? The answer is, Paul gives it here. We should be preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what we're supposed to preach here. Does it mean that that never has an application to politics? Yes, sometimes it does. Does it mean it never has an application to the way that we behave in society? Of course it does. Does it mean it doesn't have any application about what goes in your family? Of course it has an application. But the primary emphasis is not on what can Christ do for me. The primary emphasis upon his riches, who he is, and what we ought to be for him. God's purpose is Christ. And that is being played out in this torn and evil world. And so look what Paul says about the Christian ministry and about preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look what he says. First of all, he talks about the calling. The calling by God's power. Verse 7 and verse 8. The first habit of this gospel, I was made a minister. According to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So look at his calling here. He talks about the ability with the gospel call. It was given to me by the working of his power, this gift of God's grace. That's not talking about Paul's salvation. Paul's talking about his calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It is a gracious gift of God that God gave him that calling to the gospel ministry. And notice that in this calling, God has given him power. Paul did not deserve to be a minister of the gospel. The word minister here, fellows, is diakonos, which is the word from which we get deacon. And what we're talking about here is how the word is used. It just means someone who actively serves. We don't have a group of deacons here that sit around and make decisions. They serve. 
They serve the congregation. Some of them better than others, obviously. But they serve the congregation. That's their primary task. And Paul was saying here, I'm called not to be somebody, but to serve this gospel ministry. And my primary assignment is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul counted his calling to serve the gospel and to to preach to the Gentiles as a gift he did not deserve. It was by grace. For some reason, I'm going to complain now. For some reason, these preacher boys go off to seminary. And they finish their schooling and many of them get the least amount that they can get. They're not preparing for the ministry. They're just trying to get a piece of paper so that they might get a job. Now, I'm just tell it like it is. And so they do that. And then for some reason, they get through that. And they put two and a half years of their life into it or two years. And for some reason, they think now they deserve a pulpit. Just because they've done some schooling, they deserve a pulpit. Friends, uh, no one deserves it. Nobody deserves the right to be able to stand in front of a congregation and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. No one has earned it. No one deserves it. If Paul didn't deserve it, neither do we. It's given by God's grace. God has been gracious to me. I'm in a small percentage of pastors that throughout my pastoral ministry I've always had a full-time church meaning that I was able to give my complete attention to the congregation that God had given to me that's rare most of the guys that are called into ministry in our day it's not like that for them we have from time to time uh, under my ministry young men that God will call the gospel ministry. And the one thing I keep trying to pound in their head. Do you see what I'm doing here? That ain't going to be you. You're not me. God may have you serving some little town somewhere. Some little crossroads somewhere in Ohio that nobody's ever heard of and can't spell. And all 32 of you will be there on high attendance day. You serve that with distinction and dedication. You don't deserve it. We need to help people to understand that. But not only that. No one deserves to do anything here. And serve in any capacity. You don't deserve the right to arrange the chairs in this building. Nobody deserves it. Nobody does. All of this has been given by God's grace. It's by God's grace. Now look at the humility that comes from this gospel call. Paul says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. Paul saw himself as the least of all the saints. The ministry that he had was not because he earned it, but because God graciously gave it. And again, no one deserves to serve the Lord in any capacity. From the nursery to the pulpit, No one deserves the privilege to serve the Lord. Do you know why sometimes you can't get God's people to serve 
the Lord through their local church. You don't want to know why they try to do the least? Because they don't think they're the least of all the saints. They think they're the best of all the saints. And that the rest of the saints exist to serve them. That's exactly why. They don't have a concept of grace. They don't understand. They don't deserve the right to set one foot on this property. They don't deserve the right to even hear somebody teach the Bible. They don't deserve the right to even sit in a chair here. They don't deserve the right to breathe the atmosphere of this church. Not a single one of us deserves it. The sooner we get hold of that, the more clearly we'll understand what God has done for us by His grace. We don't earn it. Sometimes I've, in ministry I've had people that have given a significant amount of money for something. And boy, it's a temptation in their heart and mind to think now they deserve something. They didn't even deserve the opportunity to give. They don't understand that. They don't get it. Paul got it. No one has to serve the Lord here. Do you understand that? No one has to serve the Lord. But by God's grace, you get to serve the Lord. Don't ever lose sight of that. We are the least of all the saints. The least. The least important. None of us deserves it. The calling. You know, a nominating committee, I should have preached this before y'all got started, shouldn't I? It would have been better. They would have felt real guilty and said, yes, I know. It would have helped, right? The calling by God's power. Now look at the content of this gospel proclamation as he's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 8, the second half of it, he says, This is the grace that was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know what you just heard? Well, that's why I'm here to explain it to you. Look at this. The content of gospel proclamation is, of course, preaching Christ's unsearchable riches. The word unsearchable there, it's not found anywhere in the Greek language outside of biblical Greek. You know why that is? Paul couldn't think of a good word, so he made one up. Now, we have somebody on staff that specializes in that, but it's for a different reason altogether. Amen. I told Joe, we're going to, we're going to capture some of those because he comes up with some good ones. I'm like, that's a better word. It really is. Let's, let's put it in the dictionary. So we're going to, we, got, we may make up some good ones sometimes. So unsearchable. Now, the, the word comes from this uh, root word that means to track. It was like when someone was trying to track the footprints of a the prints of like a uh, of, of an animal to hunt them down and so you'd have a tracker somebody would track that and what this word is saying is that you can't follow the trail and arrive at an understanding of the riches of Christ it's beyond it's unsearchable you can't find it out the measure of it is immeasurable the quality of it is indescribable the depth of it is unfathomable. 
you can't get a hold of it. This richness that is Christ. And the preacher is supposed to preach that. That which we can't get a hold of. You know how I know I've done a good job? Is when we get to that point and you just say, I have no idea, but God is good. We get to that point that our logic has to sit down and say, I rest. I can't follow. It's beyond me. Yes, that's God. Beyond me. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, what are these riches? Well, we don't have time, okay? But let me take one verse of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Bible says, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. We pose some questions like, who is God? Why are humans like they are? Why doesn't God do something? How can I know God? Take these questions and run them through John Hopkins Medical School and run them through Harvard Law School and run them through MIT School of Engineering and you know what you'll get? Nothing. You know why? Because it's the wisdom of God. Now, I'm not saying those, that kind of understanding and, and, and education is not useful. I, I'm not downing education. Lord, mercy, I've spent too, much, too many brain cells and too many dollars trying to get more because I'm stupid. So I have to do something. But what I'm trying to say is human knowledge is one thing. The wisdom of God is a different matter altogether. And so in the wisdom of God, Christ has revealed to us these answers. The, the world does not have them. And it cannot attain them. When COVID hits, or something like it again, or there's another war, or there's an economic downturn, or whatever may come, I can't help you by advising you whether you should get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or whatever. I can't help you by telling you where you ought to invest God's money. But you know what I can do? I can do something better. I can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and His wisdom. Do you know what He says about all these kinds of things? Here's what He says. The righteous one is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not. Be afraid. Psalm 112, 7 and 8. That's the wisdom of God. I can tell you that no matter what may come, no matter what it is, we can trust in the one who has all of this in his hand. This is what I've been trying to tell you the whole time of COVID. Like, don't panic like the world does. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to die and go to heaven? That, that's the worst we got. I mean, the worst thing would happen to you is that you'd feel like you're going to die, but get better. That would be the worst. There's no need to fear. The wisdom of God tells us that we can trust in Him. And trusting in Him, our heart is steady, and we will not be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. You say, well, Pastor, what if somebody dies? They do it every day. 
Come on, man. The unsearchable riches of Christ. He's made to his wisdom. Think about God's wisdom. God sent his son. Not on a throne, but in a manger. Why? So the lowly could come to him and the high and mighty would have to kneel to him. That's God's wisdom. God sent his son not to walk in the palaces of the kings, but to serve in the shop of a carpenter. Why? So that the average man would know Christ came for him. God allows the people that he had called from out of the other nations to receive the revelation of the salvation in the Messiah. He allows these people to put his son on the cross. Why? Because there's no salvation without the shedding of blood. The wisdom of God. And while hell was screaming and clapping and cheering on the third day, he came from the grave. The wisdom of God. We have to begin to understand that the natural man cannot grasp the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they're spiritually explained. It's the wisdom of God that we get in Christ. The world can't have it. We have it. We know. What else do we have from him? Righteousness. Who would have ever thought that I could stand before God and declare, I'm righteous? Well, I know you look at people's lives, look at my life and think, well, well, we got a list we got going on, you know. If you keep that list, you better get you another sheet of paper if you're doing that. How in the world can sinners stand before God and be declared righteous? It's an accounting problem. And God solved it. My ledger says debt. Christ's ledger says righteousness. Let's take my debt and switch it over to him. He pays for it. And let's take his righteousness and put it on my accounts. Problem solved. Who would have ever thought you get that in Christ? People that are trying to earn their way to heaven and gain righteousness. You're insane. There's no way. There is nobody has ever kept the law and done so. And been able to declare themselves righteous. It's never going to happen. and never has happened. and never will happen. The righteousness of God. And look at this, what he gives us. And sanctification. How in the world, how in the world could I ever change? Let's say God forgives me of everything because of Christ. Great, I'm pardoned, great. But am I going to just be the same old wretch I've always been? Sanctification, where does it come from? In Christ, my connection to him, that's it. And so he begins to change me. And then this thing of redemption. Here, this part of redemption he's talking about is the redemption of the whole world and the resurrection of the saints. Who would have ever thought? But we get that in Christ. These are some of the riches of Christ. But what are the other ones? Think of this. Peace. Do you remember when you didn't have peace? Do you remember, do you remember when you didn't have peace in your soul? Do you remember those days? Jesus said, my peace, I leave with you. Not as the world gives. 
but my kind of peace. I give that to you. You get that? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a richness that comes from Christ alone. The world doesn't have it. Think of this. You get assurance. You rest in assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's the richness of Christ. The world has assurance of nothing. They're not assured of anything. You have an assurance of heaven, eternal life. Isn't that a great place to be? The richness of Christ. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to wonder. All of this is in Christ and so much more. I've got to move on. Notice this also, the content of the gospel proclamation. We're preaching Christ's unsearchable riches, but also preaching God's unfolding plan. Look in verse 9 and 10 again. Look at this. He says, and to bring to light. Do you, do you see this? If, if you're looking at your Bible and you have, go back to verse 8. And you see the content here. Verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles. You see that? To preach. Okay, that's, that's one purpose. That's, that's one assignment of his preaching. Then in verse 9, and to bring to light. That's the other one. You see how you look at the Bible? So Paul says, it's given to me uh, this ministry. And this ministry to what? To do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then verse 9, to bring to light for everyone. Not just the Gentiles, but everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And the result of that would be so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is preaching God's unfolding plan. We humans tend to take salvation in Christ and personalize it and wrap it up in a nice private little package about Jesus loves me. And that is true. The problem with that thinking is it's only telling half of the story. Why is God saving you? It's not for your personal pleasure. It's for his purposeful plan. And his plan is a cosmic plan. It's the plan of the ages. It's the plan that includes and necessarily involves everyone whom Jesus will save. You're part of a big project. And the big project is more than just getting sin out of your life. The, the project is more than just making you a, a nicer person. The project is, is way, way bigger. As human beings, we tend to look at history through the lens of kings and princes and presidents and nations. And we notice this, they rise, and then some giant of history comes striding across the landscape of history and squashes that nation to the ground. And we wonder, and we quake, and we fear. 
Because we tend to think that history is about we humans. And it isn't. What is history about? History is simply the evidence of the activity of God to fulfill his great scheme for the world and for humanity. That's what history is. And the quicker you begin to see the events of the world through that lens, the more peace you're going to have. Do you know why Joe Biden was elected? The plan of God. Wait a minute, preacher, wait a minute. I'm a Republican, it can't be. Dear God in heaven. You and I can't afford to look at things through that kind of lens. The world is already doing that. The non-Christians are already, they already see things that way. They're already looking at that. It drove me nuts. We had some evangelicals that evidently thought Trump was the second Messiah. Are you crazy? He's a politician. Nebuchadnezzar in a nice suit. Come on, man. Come on. And so we begin, to, we start going crazy. Oh, oh my goodness. And so we're just going to go nuts over it. Why? Because we are not looking at history through this lens. Salvation is not just about you personally and, and individually. It's about God's cosmic plan. What is God's cosmic plan? His plan is to restore the world. His plan is to create a new humanity in which the only identity marker among those humans is simply this, bought by the blood of the Lamb. That's it, none other. God doesn't care if your ancestors are from Africa or from Ireland. He could care less. His nation, His new people consists in those who've repented of the rebellion and put their faith in His Son. That's His people. Man is trying to create this new world order by dismissing God. They think God is the problem. God is the one who causes conflict. And so they're trying to promote this idea of, of tolerance of all things and all viewpoints. And so you can be sinful, but you're born that way, evidently. And so this kind of thinking is chaotic nonsense. And it, it, it will inevitably lead to conflict, as we are already seeing. But here's the thing that you probably haven't considered. Yes, God has a plan. And God is restoring and going to restore all things. New heaven, new earth. And there will be a new humanity. Those who are saved and followers of Jesus. That's the new humanity. And everything that pollutes that, all sin will be discarded and, and extracted from that situation. And those things, sin will be no more. And so we know that. But here's what you probably don't know. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here, here's the kicker about God's plan. God is doing this through the church. Now, 
We've been living in an era in which people are like, well, I'll take Jesus, but I don't need the church. Aren't you a smart little cookie? Have you read the Bible? Let's try that on. God's manifold wisdom. All the hues and colors and tones and expressions of the wisdom of God. Guess how it's being displayed? It's being displayed through the church. And here he is talking about the church at large. That is, everyone who is indeed truly a follower of the Lord Jesus through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Through those people, everywhere that we are, the wisdom of God is being manifest. Now, wisdom of God being manifest to whom? He tells us here, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know that this is what's going on at this moment? Listen to me. The angels are doing this. Look at them. Are you kidding me? How in the world has God brought mechanics and doctors and school teachers and disabled people and those who are self-employed and those in real estate and those in insurance and those from eastern Kentucky and those from east Tennessee and snooty ones from Cleveland and those from Michigan and those from Texas and those from Louisville, Kentucky and those from Alabama and he's brought them all together and they love each other more strongly than they love their own biological family? How in the world has God done that? They were witnessing when the world was falling apart and Adam and Eve had disobeyed and they saw Cain kill Abel. And they saw Lamech tell people, I have seven wives and if you mess with me, I'll kill all of you. And they saw the unfolding of humanity. They saw Saul, the king, and all that he did. They saw Samson's debauchery. They saw the murderous Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean Empire. And they saw these things. And they witnessed Hitler and, and Stalin and Mao Zedong. And they've seen all of this. And they look at the church. How has God done that? The manifold wisdom of God on display. Only God can yank people out of the midst of the cesspool of humanity and form them into a people for himself. Only God can do that. And Satan is at work. He's turning people against God constantly. And he thinks, and the world thinks, if God were real, he'd just zap them all. And you know what God's doing? He extends grace and grace and grace. And he calls, come home. And that person says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. That's what God is doing. God never forced a single sinner. He calls. He calls. Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I was talking to a guy one time. He's a believer. He was a former Muslim. And I said, tell me how you came to Christ. 
he said, I was getting a taxi. And when the taxi was stopping, for some reason, I remembered some Christian told me that verse that I just quoted from Matthew, from Jesus. And he said, I realized in Islam I had no peace. And I wanted that. See, that's what God does. Why? How? In that situation, I don't know, can't explain it. But that's God and his unfolding plan. And his plan has always been the church. Listen, folks, how dare us construct a theology to act as if the church is plan B? Oh, God tried with Israel. Oh, they failed. So he, he, he had to get a new plan. What is wrong with you? God's plan is not Israel, by the way. How do I know that? Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. How long has it been God's purpose that it would be the church that would display his manifold wisdom eternally. The Jews were supposed to build the church. Instead, they decided to build Israel. That's part of God's plan. Did God use it? Do you not know the first church was nearly 100% Jewish? He got them anyway. Through the church. Listen, here's the other thing. Then Satan will come along and say, the only reason that those people served Jesus, the only reason that the church loved Jesus is because he makes their life easy. You know, God has a wonderful purpose for your life and all that. And so, the only reason, see, look at those people. Their life goes great. And so that's the reason they serve the Lord. And do you know what God does in his wisdom? He allows pain. He allows suffering in the lives of his children. He allows, dif he allows difficulty and sickness and cancer and heartache and disappointment and rebellious children and loss of job and every other problem that the rest of the world has. He allows it into our lives. Do you know why? Because what comes from our lips next is simply this. With Job we say, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And he shames Satan and his crew. Well, the gospel proclamation, I could talk about that. But let, let, me, let me, we've got to finish up here. You, you've been here too long. The confidence in God's purpose. Verses 11 through 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Which is your glory. The confidence is purpose. Knowing that God's purpose is unchangeable. This was according to the eternal purpose. Again, God's eternal purpose has always been the church. There's no plan B. It's always been the church. That's always been his plan. One body of people from all different nationalities composing the body of Christ on this earth. Let me just say it plainly. Israel, Israel had better get in the church or she's going to be lost forever. The church is not supposed to get into Israel. Okay? We're not supposed to become Jewish. 
the Jews had better get in the church or they're going to be lost forever. Knowing that God's purpose is unchangeable gives us confidence. And knowing that God's presence is available in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. It's not an arrogant boldness. But the gospel, it gives us a grace-saturated boldness. If I had to approach God upon my merits, I would never be able to get in. But I approach Him based upon His grace. And by His grace, He has applied the merits of Jesus to my life. And it's based upon borrowed merit that I'm able to approach the throne of grace with as much confidence as Jesus himself. That is an astounding thought. There is no barrier for Gentile or Jew if you come through Christ. The flip side of that is, if you're not in Christ, there's nothing but a barrier. You have no access. Oh, but I, I, pray, I pray. No, you don't. You talk to yourself. Ain't nobody answering on the other end. I can promise. Well, I know what God. No, you don't know nothing. You go to the Bible and you read what God says. That's how you know. You don't get the privileges of those who are in Christ. My son, uh, he and his wife, uh, every once in a while, they're able to come in from Philadelphia. And, you know, they ring the doorbell. Guess how that goes? Doors open. Daughter-in-law pushes him out of the way, you know. Well, I'm here. And uh, we hug them, welcome them. What do you want to eat? What can we do? What do you guys want to do? Let's do That's what it is. Now, that's how that welcome happens. The guy that comes by wanting to sell new gutters, ding dong, what? You see, that's the difference. It's the difference with God between family and a gutter salesman. And if people that think that, oh, I've got great access to God, no, you don't. He cracks the door to tell you to go away. You're not part of the family. You get in the family through Christ. Well, so what, what do we conclude? Okay, so, so here's, here's what we've got to do. You have to think about this. Are we manifesting the wisdom of God through the church? Are we, are we showing that? How, now, how, how do we show that? We show that by not showing preferential treatment to those that the world would. Instead, we welcome each other on equal terms because we are in Christ. Now, obviously, the personality and background stuff, that you, you have an affinity for some people in the congregation more than you do others. That, that you can't be equal friends with everybody here. Okay, that, that's true. But we're talking about in the family itself. How do we view each other? Is there more criticism that comes out of our mouth about each other? Who, who are we? To bring an accusation against those whom God has purchased. Who, who are we to talk down about someone that is part of the ones that God has chosen from out of this world to be his? That doesn't mean we ignore each other's sin. 
there's a system among us to help each other to take care of that and, and to maybe turn from sin when we get in sin. That, that's not saying we, we're not concerned about holiness. We are. But the acceptance of one another. I was talking to a guy one time, a pastor of a church in Ohio. And here's what he said. I said, well, how, how's it going faster in the church there? And he said, well, it, it's okay. He said, uh, there's just some things I, I don't know uh, what to do about. I said, well, what, what, like, like what? And uh, he said, well, my deacons, for example. I said, bro, you're on your own there now. So he said, well, here's what it is. He said, last Sunday, uh, we, we had some guests come for the first time in a while. And he said, my chairman of deacons came up to me and said, Pastor, do you know those strangers back there? Strangers? You see, no concept of, man, maybe these could be people that God is drawing out of the world and going to put them in his body. Let's check this out. Let's find out what's going on. No concept of what God is doing in this world. And we have people that are Christians and their lens, their, the, the way they think about everything is not how is God displaying his manifold wisdom through the church. Instead, they're looking at the world through the lens of political parties or whatever else other lens they want to look through. And that's how they view everything is in that realm. For some of them, it's like their constitutional right is more important to them than their rights in Christ. They probably couldn't name one benefit they have in Jesus, but they can name all the benefits of the Bill of Rights. That's sad. Let me just tell you this. Let's just be dead honest about this now. God's eternal purpose is not America. It's the church. Let me tell you why America still exists. Because in God's wisdom, in some way, America is still benefiting the church. God's eternal purpose is the church. It's not this nation or any other. All of these nations are going to pass away. Now, again, you think, well, Pastor, you, you don't love your country. Oh, oh, yes, I do. I've lived other places. I come back here, I might kiss the ground. That, 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 but that's here. That's the here and now. That's not an eternal thing. I mean, I love my bank account too, but it's not eternal. Right? So we're talking about the big picture here. And some people come to me, Pastor, the book of Revelation, I don't see America. Well, you're not going to be an American. You're Christian. You're one of the children of the king. What are you worried about that for? This serves a purpose in God's eternal plan for the church. For the church. You, in some way, serve God's eternal plan for the church. We have to manifest that and show that to the world. Now, you can only do that practically through your local church. I mean, there has to be an organized way to do it. An organized, accountable way to do that is obviously through your local church. So that makes sense, right? So are we showing the world, though, that this is the wisdom of God? And that this is a little taste of where history is going. Where is history going? What is God doing? Just listen, listen to these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. It is slightly true that God has a purpose and wonderful plan for your life. But in reality, God has a wonderful plan for his church and for himself. And that is what we see at the end of the book. God have mercy upon us that we may through our lives together and individually demonstrate the kaleidoscope and color of God's wisdom to this world who's fumbling around in darkness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for showing to us that which we could have never guessed or never known. Lord, our tendency is to look at our group of people and say, surely we're the Lord's people. Surely our kind of people are the right kind. Surely we have the privilege. But in reality, the only privilege we have is by grace. When you choose to call us to yourself to come home. Father, I pray today and ask you for those who are here that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. That they would now have a glimpse of what you have prepared for those who love him. And Father, that you, by your Spirit, would call their heart out of its bondage to night and darkness. They would willingly, quickly repent of the rebellion against you and freely and gladly put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today to not only have the personal privileges of the riches of Christ, but to have their place in the church, the cosmic plan of God. Now, Father, I pray also for your people who maybe have fumbled around with life, not really understanding the events of life and why they happen and what's going on, and, and as if life is gauged or run by some kind of chance or fate or whatever it may be. God, help them to understand that in all of our suffering, all of our joy, all of our trials, all of our triumphs, it is your purpose and plan as you bring the church to yourself. 
in the end. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to work on that in our lives, to reflect upon it, meditate upon it, and may it change our view of the church forever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.